Hello, and welcome back to episode 90 of Ballot to Talk About. It's Saturday the 17th of September 2022, and joining me as always is my co-host Churn. How are you, Churn? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. It's been a little bit busy here, but uh, otherwise doing pretty good. How about yourself, Sam? Yeah, no, doing very well. I think I've just about caught up on sleep after joining The Q, the mm. single greatest British conception I have seen in my lifetime. It's just the 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 most fascinating thing. But yeah, and I also noted an appearance on Sky News as well. So ITV just left for you <laughs> then. <laughs> yes, I was I was mere meters away from K Burley on Thursday morning. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was surreal. I have to say, being eight hours ahead of you is also advantageous over this week because you're not one of the you're one of my few other more than one person that I know have joined the queue and because you most of you guys queued up through the night I've had entertainment all my my <laughs> my weekday morning so thank you very much for that it was certainly very amusing to find out how you guys were as I was heading my way to work but anyway Sam this week we're back to the Balkans area isn't it to cover what has been quite a quite a, quite a series of um, turbulent political events, isn't it? Yeah. So I mean, today we'll be discussing two countries: um, one that has just had an election, and one that is just about to have an election. Um, so we had the general election in Sweden conclude last weekend, and we'll be dissecting the nail-biter of a contest that was the Swedish general election. And later on in the episode, we'll be focusing on Latvia, upcoming elections in Latvia, um, which quite possibly has seen one of the largest political impacts from the Russia-Ukraine conflict outside of the two countries itself being situated right next to it. So we'll be diving into that upcoming parliamentary elections and the potential ramifications of that proximity later on. But First churn, it was quite a photo finish in Sweden, wasn't it? Well, to say that it was a photo finish was exactly like what we saw in the election four years ago. However, it is a different outcome. And the conclusion was that uh, Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson, whilst, and you told me this whilst you were on the queue on Thursday, um, has announced her resignation as Prime Minister, acknowledging that the group of parties supporting her and the Social Democrats will not have a majority in the next parliament. The centre-left coalition will have 173 seats, and Madeleine Anderson has resigned as Prime Minister, despite the fact the Social Democrats themselves will head into the next parliament with more seats than they had last time round. They have 107 seats, plus 7, with a 2% increase in their share, bringing it up to about 30%. The Green Party also saw its number of seats increases to 18 seats plus two, but it was the other junior coalition partners being the left party with 24 seats and the centre party with also 24 seats, which lost four and seven seats respectively. On the other side, they were replaced by a coalition of centre-right parties, which would be led by, likely to be led by moderate party leader Ulf Christensen, who is likely to be Sweden's next prime minister. This is despite the fact that his party lost two seats to 68 seats and have only secured 19.1% of the vote, down 1%. In fact, their lowest vote share since 2002. It was even more surprising, as we've somewhat foreshadowed in the last podcast, 
was the fact they're not even the largest party within the centre-right coalition, as the far-right Swedish Democrats, led by Jimmy Atkinson, secured 73 seats, plus 11 seats, and more than 20% of the vote. And interestingly enough, the smaller parties within this coalition also lost seats. The Christian Democrats got 19 seats, down three, and the Liberals, 16 seats, down four. Now, Sam, let's just focus on the Social Democrats, the, outgo- the, the party led by outgoing Prime Minister Magdalene Anderson. Um, you, we both predicted, and me a little bit more strongly, that Magdalene Anderson would narrowly win this election. So compared to our initial assessments, because we both acknowledge it would be tight, what went wrong or differently from those initial assessments? I mean, I think what went wrong is that we were focusing too much on the parties that would be the largest groups within the alliance, rather than looking more broadly, because I think the frustration for Magdalena Anderson and the Social Democrats is that they're now out of government because their allies underperformed relative to them, because as you said, they actually improved their performance. I mean, a statistic to just demonstrate that is that in 2018, the Social Democrats won a plurality of the vote in all but four of the 29 national constituencies. This time, they won the plurality of the vote in all but two. So they actually improved their broad national appeal, they improved their vote share, and they improved their seat count. But unfortunately, the people, their allies, did not. And that is the reason they're sitting outside of government, really. Um, And I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, it it really is. And um, I would like to actually draw your attention to another um, election that took place a couple of years ago, um, but not in Sweden itself. It was a 2015 Danish general election. In that election, if um, Helle Thorne-Schmidt, the Social Democrat leader, increased her party's vote share and seats, we saw the far right come into, in second place. Um, the centre right, Venstre, lose 13 seats, which are from down to from 47 to 34. But yet they were still able to form government despite being a third place party. And Helle Thorne-Schmidt was ousted as prime minister because fundamentally her allies the social liberals, which are akin to the more, a more moderate force, like the Centre Party in Sweden, lost half their seats. And the socialist left, which is, again, a more left-wing alliance, also lost half their seats as well. So it is quite similar dynamics, don't you think, to what we saw then last time in Den- Denmark? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, you brought up that comparison to me a couple of days ago, and I thought that was an excellent comparison to, to make. I think the one thing to to add as an asterisk to this is that obviously we're saying that the Allies underperformed, but what we're not entirely sure of is what was going on under the surface with vote transfers, because it could well be that the vote share from the Allies that they lost actually went in the direction of the Social Democrats to prop up Magdalena Anderson, and actually what you saw is the Social Democrat vote going elsewhere that was the main reason for for the defeat. And that's something we we won't really ever be able to find out. But I mean, certainly looking at the headline numbers, that's that's the conclusion you would draw. I, I think that is a very... Um, and I think that that could be seen in particular with blue-collar workers, actually. Because what we actually saw is, don't forget, this took place in an election in which the Social Democrats won't increase the overall vote share, but they shared the vote among blue-collar workers 
fell from 34% in 2018 to 32% in this last election. So again, it shows you that there was a shift away amongst the blue-collar base, not dissimilar to what many centre-left social democratic parties have been suffering elsewhere in Europe over the last 10 years. And where did that vote go, You people might ask? Well, unsurprisingly, that went to the Swedish Democrats, which increased its vote share amongst blue-collar workers from 29, 24% to 29%. And so that's a five-point increase. And I think that was, unfortunately, one of the death nails for Mandelina Anderson was that her alliance lost some, particularly on their blue-collar base, and it did not go to parties that would naturally support her. It went to parties that unfortunately were supporting the centre-right candidate. Mm -hmm. I mean, looking at this election, obviously now we have the Social Democrats outside of government. We don't know what Magdalena Anderson's future as leader of the Social Democrats will be yet. We don't have clarity on that. But what is next for the party now they're outside of government in an election that actually they did reasonably well in? Yeah, this is this is really interesting indeed. Um, Hella Thorne-Schmidt, if we use the Danish example, soon resigned as prime minister, but she had four years and had been party leader since 2006. By the time of the 2015 election, was she had spent quite a long period of time in the party leadership. You know, I wonder if Magdalene Anderson, she unfortunately would enter the history books for the wrong, re as one of Sweden's shortest serving prime ministers. Yes, it would take time to form a government, but currently you have to look back to the late 1970s uh, for Ola Ushten to serve less than a year in office. And before that, to the 1930s to find the next shortest serving Swedish prime minister. So I reckon that there is a possibility that she could decide to stay on as party leader. But then again, staying on in party, um, party leader is very different when you're prime minister compared to your leader opposition. It requires two different skill sets. And I think the Social Democrats will see how she's performing. I think there's a lot of goodwill generated towards her in the short term because she increased the party's vote share. But I think how she performs as opposition leader will really determine whether she can survive in the next four years or so. But the I suppose the, the, the possibility for the party to discard her might be similar to what, as we discussed last time, why the moderate party did not discard Ulf Christensen, despite him performing worse. This is slightly different because they, she was not given a long enough time frame. Maybe she might be given it this time around, considering the fact that only two seats are needed to change a government. That is a very mm. small margin for error, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, there's, I think there's some other things to look at here. Just building on what you just said, I think all is not lost because, as you said, they, she did increase the seat count and vote share. And we're now likely entering a period where a centre-right prime minister will be propped up by a far-right nationalist political party. And sometimes those kind of environments really benefit um, an opposition, a sizable opposition, uh, we, we will say as well, because the Social Democrats are going to be by far the single largest party within the Swedish parliament once it reconvenes and the new government's installed. And that could be quite a favourable position if you end up with a government that is quite fractious, because as I'm sure we'll come on to talk about later, it's going to be quite a feat to try and put together this right-wing government. We're all assuming it's going to happen, and it's incredibly likely that Ulf Christensen will be 
Prime Minister, but that's not to say that it will be a very easy relationship. And having a, a, a position of strength, a relative strength for the Social Democrats will be favourable position. I think one of the most alarming things, if I'm looking forward as a Social Democrat, is actually the exit poll data on age, because that it took me by surprise, I'm sure it would take Magdalena Anderson by surprise, is that amongst 65 plus, there was a 21 point lead over the Swedish Democrats for the Social Democrats. So that's a good position to be in. Amongst 18 to 21 year olds, the youngest voters, the moderates led the way on 26%. The Swedish Democrats were second in 22%. And the Social Democrats were all the way down in third on 20%. And those kind of statistics I would find quite concerning because when you couple that with their significant losses amongst blue collar workers, you have an environment where potentially your voter pool is actually shrinking. And that could be an alarming thing moving forward. So yes, they're in a favorable position going into this, going into opposition, but they do have to be careful that I think their narrative is going to have to slightly change because otherwise their voter pool is going to start evaporating and it could be quite quickly. Yeah, and, and more and and like with blue collar workers, their share will fail among this age group compared to last time round as well. So uh, I think that is something to note as well is that the and in fact what I find even more fascinating is that amongst the eighteen to twenty one year olds, look at the Swedish Democrat vote. It went from twelve percent in twenty eighteen to twenty two percent in this election. So that's a huge increase amongst a cohort that not necessarily are so. Um, if they are socially liberal, could you know necessarily see themselves as um, natural voters for the far right? And I think it shows you the success of the Swedish Democrats in tapping onto a frustration with the general population about potentially cost of living, unemployment potentially, and manifesting itself in immigration and immigration policies um, uh, that has appealed to this generation of voters. So I, I think that that could be something to watch as well. But Throughout the last four years, what we saw, Sam, was that the Social Democrats were really struggling to marry the policy positions of the left party and the policy positions of the center party. Center party. They were ideologically opposed on a wide range of issues. Now, this provided a lot of cannon fodder for the right to, to talk about government disunity. But let's be frank, the center right is going to face the same problem now, isn't it? With the liberals on one side and the Swedish Democrats. And the liberals have already said uh, quite clearly that they that uh, it pertains to potentially difficult negotiations ahead that they do not want to be in a government with the Swedish Democrats, isn't it? Yeah, I think, as we said, we, we're expecting a centre-right government here, but what it looks like, I think, remains very, very unclear because beyond Magdalena Anderson, the priority order for people being told they can try to form a government the first one would be the Swedish Democrats, which is going to fail because the Liberal Party will not be part of it. And I would be very surprised if the moderates would even be part of a Swedish Democrat-led government. So then we fall to Ulf Christensen. Now, his debate is, do I try and arrange formal negotiations with the Swedish Democrats, which would inevitably lead to them having to sit around the cabinet table? But if I do that, I probably won't be able to count on the support of the Liberals, who, yes, are going to be the smallest party in this parliament, but are absolutely vital to you being able to build majorities for legislation. So therefore, the most likely outcome you would assume 
is moderate Christian Democrat liberal coalition tacitly supported from the outside by the Swedish Democrats. But what? But then you think, why would the Swedish Democrats accept that? Because they're the largest party and they would sit outside of the government. Um, and for what kind of gains? Because you wouldn't think that Olf Christensen would pursue many Swedish Democrat policy positions because the Liberals have said they're not going to support that. So you wouldn't be able to build a majority. So I feel like you're caught in an endless loop of um, negotiations with either side. And all that might really happen here is that you sort of are left with a bit of a status quo where nothing really happens because you can't pass anything even remotely controversial. Yeah, and and don't forget, in 2018, the Liberals joined the Social Democrat government into an in and led by then Prime Minister Stefan Lofren. And like I said, the margin for error is so small that if they feel, if one or two deputies feel that the Liberals have given too much away to the far-right Swedish Democrats, and the Liberals did spend a lot of the last four years having sort of an existential crisis in terms of what is their identity and whether we should cooperate with the Swedish Democrats or try and form or be a party in the centre that were willing to work anyone that opposes the Swedish Democrats. I think such, it only takes one or two members within that to upset the delicate balance and for it to fall apart as well. But yeah, then and again, I think you, you've seen in the media that the main, um, the main narrative seems to be about how the Swedish Democrats are going to be the kingmakers for the first time, the far right. But really, I think the key party to keep an eye on is the Liberal Party for that exact reason, because they may be a small group of just 16 seats, but that 16 seats could be vital if they choose to go in the other direction. Exactly. I, I, I couldn't have uh, made, uh, talked about it better themselves. I, I just think that, and don't forget, the party lost seats again and spent most of the last term below the 4% threshold that we saw. So I, I just wonder if they spend another period in the next years under the 4% threshold, tacitly supporting a government that has given some policies, particularly on immigration, to the far right, how one or two members might vote it remains could be the million-dollar question in Swedish politics, and potentially the opportunity for Madeleine Anderson to say, "Look, I can, if you support me, I can be the I can still be you know prime minister, and you you can therefore elect a government that is not so associated with at all with the Swedish Democrats, but." I think as well, Sam, it's not only the Liberals that have much to lose, but the Swedish Democrats themselves have much to lose. Because if we have seen occasions where the center, the far right have gone into government, like Finland in 2015 and under Ernest Solberg in Norway, but they have lost seats in those elections afterwards. And in Denmark, where the far right, as I say, in 2015 came second, but yet chose to sit outside the coalition and to allow a third party to become prime minister in last look at Rasmussen. What we saw in 2019 was the Social Democrats in Denmark come to power. The far right saw its vote half, and yet and the prime minister last look at Rasmussen was the biggest winner, although there was a change in government. So there are risks in the far right too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that'll be yet another thing we're keeping an eye on here. I think it's fascinating just how many dynamics there are to these election results because if you look at the headline results the the change in numbers for each alliance are actually very small i mean the vote share shifts 
it's hover around one to two percent in either direction for each individual party and yet the whole dynamics of the political system have shifted despite the fact that the actual net change in seats for each alliance is two yeah absolutely and it shows you that every vote counts and i think one more thing that i would like to point out before we end um the swedish component and potentially i'll get you just something to comment on is we saw a somewhat consolidation of the party system in Sweden, isn't it? Because on the right, the Christian Democrats and Liberals lost seats. Um, and on the left, the left party and centre party both lost seats. And we do note that Annie Louf, the leader of the centre party, has resigned as party leader. There's already tensions in the centre party for opting with the Social Democrats because of the category, Annie Louf category refused to work with the Swedish Democrats. So potentially an opportunity there for... Ulf Christensen to try and take out the centre party and recreate the alliance we saw which governed Sweden in 2006 and 2015. So Sam, your comments are potentially the consolidation of the party system and also I'm curious as well to get your thoughts on the Green Party's performance because they were the only small party that increases number of votes and seats in the House. So that must, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think you're very right on the consolidation that's what i was kind of alluding to earlier where i suggested that potentially the social democrats can't be too disappointed at their allies because maybe a lot of the ally vote fell into the social democrats itself anyway so even if the allies had performed in a similar way to they performed last time you wouldn't see the kind of increases that the social democrats had that's just a, a theory i've got but in terms of the Green Party, I think they have clearly benefited from being one of the most vocal, um, difficult partners over the last four years since the last election, because we discussed when we did the preview of the Swedish election that one of the big things that was causing the destabilisation of both the Lofren government and the Anderson government was the fact that the Green Party were being quite hesitant to throw their full weight behind the Social Democratic Party. And I think on the left of Swedish politics, they've clearly received some plaudits for doing so and, and maintaining ideological plural um, ideological purity. And I think that's probably the reason we've seen the slight increase we, we have when all the other parties, all the other smaller parties across the political spectrum suffered. And don't forget as well, Sweden is the home of Greta Thunberg, the famed environmentalist as well. So um, and it's been many uh, European countries. I wouldn't be surprised if many green voters are more, there were more green voters due to the more advent issue of climate change. Um, and I think that that will be very interesting to watch. Um, ultimately, despite the Greens getting an increase in the vote, in terms of environmental policies, I do not think this next government will be as pro-environmentalist as the last one. But Nonetheless, we're in for a while four years of Swedish politics to come ahead. In some ways, this election has produced winners and losers of the same party. The Social Democrats might celebrate increasing their share of the vote, but they're out of government. The far right might celebrate their fantastic gains, but the reality is they may not get their policies through, particularly if Ulf Christensen decides to deviate to the centre and try and attract the centre party to shore up his government. And we're seeing the risk of the far right in terms of falling vote shares in the next election if it gets too close to government. The moderate party lost vote share, but yet still could be 
producing the next prime minister. This election seems to be an odd one where it's produced winners and losers within the same party. So Swedish politics over the next four years will certainly not be dull. And Chern, finally, before we move on to talk about Latvia, if you were to make a call on what you think this government will look like, what would you suggest? So I I I think what we will see is uh I'm going to differ slightly from you where you said that the the moderate party prime minister the and Christian Democrats and liberals in government and the the Swedish Democrats will be supporting from the outside. I don't think it will be that, that formation. I think it will be a formation of the moderate party and the Christian Democrats. But I do not think the Liberals, considering the delicate situation of potentially needing to oppose it or be more vocal, particularly if the government published uh, passes policies that were clearly advent of the far-right Swedish Democrats and need for them to be vocal, I think they will sit outside, particularly as they know that it will be a, a fractious party and they need to unite it. I think that they will have to sit outside. So it will be a, a moderate... Um, and Christian Democrat-led government with the Swedish Democrats and Liberals um, outside it. I expect the Swedish Democrats and the Liberals, if they were smart, to probably abstain in the vote of confidence in Ulf Christensen. Because remember, you need to get a majority voting against it, which is how Madeleine Anderson became Prime Minister last time around. I think that that's what, if they were politically savvy, what they would do. But it is a very delicate balance in Sweden indeed. And welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. So, as we hinted at the start of this week's episode, we'll now be moving on to talk about an upcoming general election in Latvia, a country that we have not covered before. So, in a couple of weeks' time, they'll be going to elect the 100 members of the SIMA, um, who are elected via five multi-member open list proportional member constituencies. And each constituency, depending on population, ranges from about 12 to 36 seats. Currently, they have a five-party minority government led by New Unity with coalition partners, the Conservatives, the Development Four Alliance, National Alliance and the Who Owns the State Party. Although the latter party has actually since left the government in 2021 and has all but disintegrated as a political institution, which is one of, one of the things we'll be talking about as we preview this election. So, Chen, first, let's roll back to 2018, the last time they held an election, because we have a very curious situation in Latvia where the current Prime Minister, Artur Karins, actually hails from not just the smallest party in the coalition, but also the smallest party in the entire Latvian parliament. So, one, how did we get there? And two, do you think that's an advantageous position? Well, not only did they are the smallest party, but in the 2018 election, they performed abysmally. There was no other word for it. They only have six, eight seats in the parliament and 2018, down 15 from... So they bought more than half the number of seats in the last election. Um... I think one thing to say about Latvian politics that is, and I think this will be a constant theme in our discussion, is that there seems to be a willingness to prevent one party from getting into government, which is the Harmony Party, the centre-left Harmony Party. And we'll discuss more why 
later on. So I think the new unity had to play a part in government formation because they were crucial for the numbers to form a majority to keep harmony out of government. And what I can see in Latvian politics, and if I rewind to the last few elections, is the fact that the composition of parties that make it in and out of par parliament changes rapidly. And it's clear to me that there's quite a high disillusionment with Latvian politics. I think it can be also seen the fact that turnout is traditionally quite low in Latvia. In the last election, it was 54%. And leading or being the face of the government that is traditionally unpopular with the people, I think presents the parties with a lot of risk. And so therefore, I, start, I wonder if parties could be reluctant to put themselves as prime minister because they know they will bear the brunt of the people's frustrations with the government and therefore might you know, see their position in the last election completely disintegrate by the time of the next election. So I think, so to recap, the one thing to prevent harmony from forming a government, two, the fact that we necessitate new unity's involvement, and two, the fact that the general disillusionment with Latvian politics has meant that many parties could, bigger parties could be reluctant to become prime minister and more want to maintain their power influence over many elections to come, has meant that you, new unity, despite being the smallest party, has been able to for become the new uh, Arthur Krugers could become prime minister. And Sam, I've got this amazing statistic to you. Do you know how long is the longest serving Latvian prime minister? I actually don't know the answer to that question, no. So the longest serving Latvian prime minister is um, served just, so if you ignore an authoritarian uh, figure who governed most of Latvia in the 30s and 40s, the longest serving prime minister of Latvia only served just over four years throughout the entire of Latvia's political history. I mean, that is an astonishing statistic, in my opinion. It really is. It really is. And I mean, I was looking into um, the how long political parties have been active, because one thing I noticed was just the turnover of political parties was was quite astonishing. and. It was really difficult to find a party that had lasted prior to the last election, let alone um, for the last few decades. I think there's a handful of parties competing in this election who have who have competed in multiple elections prior. So, I mean, yeah, the turnover was incredibly high. And I think the reasons you gave for how they ended up in this position with the smallest party in Parliament providing the Prime Minister... The, the specifics of what went on after 2018 were, were, I found quite difficult to follow because there were that many people invited to form a government. You started with the Conservatives, they attempted, but they wanted to um, exclude the Green Party, which actually numerically was not really possible. Um, and other parties wanted to include the Greens. So then that attempt failed. And then they turned to the Who Owns the State Party, who actually did better than the Conservatives. They wanted to include the Greens, but then the Conservatives didn't want to get involved because it included the Greens. And then we ended up with a coalition led by the smallest party because it was the only way to get everybody around the table who was necessary, including Development 4 and excluding the Greens. So this is where we've ended up. And what's happened? You're now looking ahead to an election in two weeks' time where 
The new Unity Party, who were the smallest party and provided the Prime Minister in 2018, are looking set to be the largest party by quite a distance in this election. And the party that everyone was trying to exclude, the Greens, are looking set to probably double their representation in Parliament. So that's the reality we have, combined with the fact that two of the five parties who formed the government four years ago might not even have seats in the Parliament at all in a few weeks' time. So the turnover is incredible, really. I, I, I don't know about you, Sam, but one of the things when I started this podcast that I didn't appreciate was the fact that we've always been taught in our political science that um, the leader of the largest party in a coalition government would form the prime minister. I just wanted to probe you what you... and But nonetheless, you know, we've seen Iceland that being the case, not not being the case, with uh, its Prime Minister Catherine Jakobs-Dodier being from the smallest party. Latvia seems to be a similar example as well. What are the what are your impressions, and what do you think is the advantages and disadvantages of such a move, and uh, and of such a move of appointing someone from a smaller party, significantly smaller, to lead the government? Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting move, and not particularly conventional, but. I think one of the key advantages could be that in a system where parties generally have quite low performances, so you're you're looking at a situation in two weeks' time where it's likely that maybe two parties will get more than 10% of the vote, yet you'll see nine parties represented in the Saima. It can be quite a good move to get a prime minister from a smaller party because it has larger chance of bringing more people around the table because... If you just go for the largest party, people might feel like they're just going to be playing second fiddle in a government rather than being part of the entire operation. Whereas if you have a prime minister from a party who, if they decide to try and do things alone, they're not going to even be close to being able to pass any kind of legislation, but they will have to work with other people and have to bring more people around the table. And in the case of in the case of the New Unity Party in this example, and the Left Green Alliance in the Icelandic example with Kashin Jakobsdeltia, it brings a slightly different ideological approach to the prime premiership, which can be a useful tool in trying to bring parties into the fold that maybe wouldn't be in the fold, for example, in this case, if the Conservatives had provided the government, because Development 4 tend to be more of a centrist, potentially even... Um, leftist leaning on some issues party and it would be more difficult to bring them into the fold if the conservatives were leading the government than it would be when the new unity party are leading the government and i think that is where the advantages come from obviously the disadvantages are that the prime minister leads an insignificant group in this coalition so doesn't really feel like they have a stake and equally the mandate they've received from the general populace is also insignificant. So if you try and put your party's stamp on legislation, people just won't buy that because you haven't received a significant number of votes to, to do that. And crucially, this means that if we think about if people vote for their first preference parties, you know, you might see it backroom deals basically being the election's only half the battle. The other half of the battle takes place within 100 matches of the SEMA 
in terms of who can find majority support. And one might argue, although theoretically it could have the majority of support within the parliament and of the people, the reality is, is that very few people endorse that policy platform, as you so eloquently decided. And clearly, being a small party means that you're basically having to play peacemaker to an unwieldy coalition. And it includes who owns the state, which didn't exist as a party four years ago, but yet over in one term has completely disintegrated. So Sam, what happened to who owns the state? Because its title does suggest um, how it got popular support, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And, and they did very well last time around. They actually came second in the election and gained 16 members of the Latvian parliament. I mean, now they have one member of the Latvian parliament and actually their party's name has completely changed um, into For a Humane Latvia rather than Who Owns the State Party. I think the problems fall back to the fact that, well, they actually, rewinding a bit further, they actually model their party's ideological approach and institutional approach on the Five Star Movement in Italy. And it's interesting that we were talking about Italy last week because there's quite a few parallels there. Obviously, this is a far more exaggerated case than the Five Star Movement, but I think for similar reasons, which is when you have a party that is made up of members from all kinds of ideological backgrounds, it is not designed to be able to function as a united political party in an assembly. And we saw that in the Who Wants the State Party because one year into this, less than a year into this parliament, um, you had Gosbums, who was the prime minister candidate that I alluded to just a few minutes ago, was ousted from the political party um, because he didn't agree with the other significant faction in the party, which then followed um, Linda Leipner resigning as co-chairperson a few weeks later, followed then by two MPs, and then they reached a period of relative stability. Then came the Riga City Council election, where they got just 1.1% of the vote. Following that, they voted to remove the chairman, Atis Zakatistovs, from the party entirely, not just from his position. They kicked him out of the entire party and then voted to rename the group. Then the one of their few cabinet ministers, the Minister for Economics, Yanis Wittenbergs, left the party to join the National Alliance. They then had a vote on whether they should continue to endorse him maintaining his cabinet position within the party. It was a 50-50 split, and because 50% voted against and he didn't remain, they left the party completely. So then you ended up with four MPs, and since then, three more of them have opted to leave the party entirely and sit as independents, to the point where now you have a one-person block representing what used to be a 16-person block, and all of that happened within a four-year period, which is completely startling, really. I mean, in many other countries, they will cover multiple terms, not just what will happen in a single term. So that's an astonishing story, and it does show to me, you know, some of these non-established parties, the sudden rise and dramatic fall of these parties, um, it's very akin to what the Five Star Movement, as we were talking about last week, but that obviously with a party with um, much bigger, with more seats, you know, the, the percentage gain and loss of a party is significantly less in terms of its members of parliament. But that's a very good summary of what has been an astonishing four years 
in Latvian politics. Um, let's focus on move away from the government and talk about what are potentially some of the more established political parties. And I will include new, new unity in this ticket because it is all it has been part of every single government since 2010 and was probably a coalition of three parties, the New Era, Civic Union, and the Society for Political Change. And why I said this is that the formation of it was, as I mentioned earlier, partly because he wanted to oppose the left-wing Harmony Center. And let's talk about Harmony Center, because I think, despite not being government, a lot of the political fault lines lies around Harmony Center, which is a center-left political party that is not only ideologically different from many of the center and center-right politics that define Latvia, but also crucially geopolitically different in a sense that it represents, it draws a lot of its support from Russian minority interests. And their failure is that to form fine partners is extraordinary. They, despite, they topped the poll in every single election since 2011, and there have been three elections that took place in that time. So Sam, I wanted to ask, is it, do you think, just been the fact that it is a different party ideology there have been geopolitical differences, which obviously in a country that was formerly part of the Soviet Union and has very much to tried to look very much to Europe over the last 20 years. The reason why there is no lack of representation from the left more generally, because any representation from the left would be associated not only with Russian interests, but also communists and, the, and what happened to them when Latvia was under the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I I was reading an article about this where they were talking about how up until quite recently, um, Latvian politics had been dominated by ethnic and cultural divisions rather than pure ideological positions. Which is why, from someone who is used to viewing a party system through an ideological lens, this party system seems really unusual because you have the Russian Minority Party as the quote-unquote Social Democratic Party. This is going on the 2018 results. And then every other party is of the centre or centre-right, which that kind of imbalance is not something that is typical in a political system, but it makes much more sense when you understand it through a cultural and ethnic lens because it's much more focused around um, what language people speak, where in the country they're from, and what their heritage is, rather than ideological perspectives. But interestingly, moving into this election, we are seeing a bit more of an ideological divide emerge because we now have two more players on the left of, of Latvian politics. One is the Progressive Party, which are projected to do pretty well in this election. And another one is yet another um, Russian minority party, which is called the Four Stability Party. And they're about to make an, another impression on more towards the centre, but um, of a different ideological position, yet still representing that cultural minority. But historically, yeah, I think definitely it's to do with the that legacy of the Soviet Union, because there were actually in the, when Latvia first started holding um, free and fair elections, there were three parties called the Social Democratic Party. Three. One has now become the Harmony Alliance, the Russian Minority Party. 
One was the remnants of the Soviet communists, and one was the Social Democratic Workers' Party, which has since merged into what is now the socially conservative Green and Farmers' Union, which we now know to be the party that was they were trying to exclude in the 2018 um, government negotiations. So when one of those is a Russian minority and one is the legacy of the Soviet communists, you can understand why the more Latvian-speaking elements of the country were hesitant about supporting parties of the left when two-thirds of the leftist tradition actually had very Russian-centric um, pasts. And I think that's one of the big reasons why we, did, we don't see, up until now, a significant representation on the left in Latvian politics. And when one of your main leftist parties um, folds into a socially conservative Green Party, it does, um, you do ask questions about whether the left is even viable in Latvia. Well, Sam, I, I would like to bring you down memory lane to one of the first few podcasts we did, which was the 2020 Lithuanian election. And one of the questions we asked in that podcast was, do you remember ever a political alliance of the Greens and farmers coming together? Well, it's taken nearly two years, but we finally found another country, potentially in the same neck of the woods, that has a union of Greens and farmers, because it's the full name of the Union of Greens and Farmers, which the Social Democratic Workers' Party have joined. So I think sometimes names could be misleading, and I think that it does suggest the machinations of this is very interesting as well. I think on the wider split of the left, I think what has happened was that the Harmony Alliance, in my opinion, was very efficient in the past because they were minority, uh, they represented Russian minority politics they, and a minority against the majority speaking Latvia. It was very much easier to, for, for Russian speakers to consolidate within one party because that was probably the best way in which they could gain political influence within uh, within a uh, population that majority speaks Latvian. It is why, for example, there is the Swedish People's Party in Finland, for example, because they represent uh, Swedish int minority interests in Finland. And they have formed, uh, un unlike the Harmony Centre, they have formed a constructive parts in nearly every government in recent times. However, Sam, the Harmony Alliance has really disintegrated, particularly over the last year, and can really only point to the Russia-Ukraine conflict for that, can't we? No, absolutely. And I think it's very difficult to talk about the the ethnic divisions in this election without referencing the Russia-Ukraine conflict, because it's looking like the um, Harmony Alliance's vote share will halve going into this election. And we have a couple more players in that realm emerging. So you have the um, United List, which actually split from the Uni Union of Greens and Farmers, but has now become a Russian-speaking Russian um, minority party. And then you also, as I me mentioned before, have the For Stability Party. So I think it's also um, further illustrates as well this argument that I was talking about where um, there's a more ideological um, cleavages emerging in Latvia because even within the ethnic groups, you have ideological splits. And that's now represented in parties in a way that wasn't represented before. And I think a difficult thing in the general um, debate of this election has been how toxic it could get about the Russia-Ukraine crisis, because we talk 
we said that one of the reasons this government was formed in the way it was was to exclude the Harmony Party because they didn't want to have a Russian minority party making decisions. Well, since the U- Russian invasion of Ukraine, the government in Latvia has designated Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism and has banned Russian citizens entering the country, even if they have Schengen visas. So for the Russian minority, this is quite a a tricky time to be in Latvia because the Latvian government has come down hard on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, not in a dissimilar way to other countries across the West, but when you have a sizable Russian diaspora in the country, it must add quite a sour tone. And not only that, the issue of statues have become a particular flashpoint because obviously a lot of these statues were built when Latvia was part of the Soviet Union, but I think for many years, you know, they were willing to tolerate that as part of general Latvian history. But now, for the majority speaking Latvian population, they see that as a threat to their own country's independence and want to remove it. And therefore, and for the Russian minority, seeing such a visible sign of their heritage being removed and such emotions could stir a lot of tensions within that. So you're right, this could be a very tense election leading ahead. And I think the hardness of the Russian minority politics can be really seen because Harmony tried to shift towards a more soft Russian position in acknowledgement how unpopular it was among the wider Latvian public. And I think this could be seen in just after the 20 Crimean annexation by Russia, where what we saw was that they actually condemned Russia for annexing Crimea in 2014. And what did that result? It, it resulted in the Latvian-Russian Union, which is a Russian minority political interest party, more than double the number of votes that they got in the 2018 election and how many losing votes compared to 2014. So I think it does show you that we've begun to see the fracturing in 2018 of that Russian minority vote. And I suspect in this election, it's going to be further fracturing, and that will be to the detriment of Harmony Centre. No, absolutely. And I think um, when you have an election where we're expecting just two parties to cross 10% and potentially nine parties end up in the parliament, despite the fact that there's a 5% threshold, so that's a situation where you have seven parties with between 5 and 10%, I imagine we'll have quite another protracted period of government negotiations because even if you maintain the same sort of arrangement the parties currently if you base if you say that the last poll was gospel then the current government parties are projected to have around 39 percent so that still leaves them 10 percent short which in the current arrangement means you're going to have to have at least two more parties join this government so it's definitely going to be fascinating, and I'm I'm hesitant to make predictions, Chern, because I'm really not sure what we're going to get after this election. Well, you kind of read my mind of what the next question I was going to ask you, really, in terms of what what do you think will happen. But uh, care to hazard a guess? I'm going to one prediction I am going to make is I think there is a strong likelihood that Artur's Karins will continue as Prime Minister, because his new unity party is significantly outperforming everybody else, and also, crucially, happened to be quite a tolerable coalition partner to many of the other parties competing in this election. 
So potentially we're about to see Latvia's longest serving prime minister emerge from this election. But judging by previous election cycles, I don't, I'm not 100% confident in that, in that um, prediction. But I do think that the signs are favourable for him as a position, because assuming you have a situation where you've got new unity, the National Alliance and Development for you've then pretty much got probably around 40% of the vote, 40% of the vote before parties that didn't cross the threshold are excluded. So probably a higher percentage of the seats. And then if you invite on board potentially someone like the the Green and Farmers Union or even the progressives, if they want to get involved in the government, then you're not far off a majority. So I, I do think that the likelihood is stronger than not that Aturs Karins remains prime minister after this election. I don't know what you think, Chern. Yeah, that was the one prediction which uh, you kind of stole from you. So I do think new unity will play a prominent part. I do wonder what we could see is, um, I noted that the National Alliance is in this government. It's considered a right-wing to far-right political party. But I just wonder if the strength of the progressives has meant that instead of turning very, they need to include a centre-left political party, potentially in the form of the progressives, or potentially the union and greens and farmers, probably the latter. And how they square that circle could be very contagious, to say the least. And I, I, I think that what we can be said is that I think we could be in for quite a long period of government negotiations in this election, which I'm sure in a country in which has long expressed, as I said at the top when we opened the Latvian section, a lot of discontent with political parties, given how often they throw their parties out, even though they were in government less than four years ago, I think does make this upcoming set of negotiation, despite the stability that it could result in several parties remaining in coalition, it could be some quite interesting times ahead. So I suppose in both Sweden and Latvia, post-election could be very much more interesting than pre-election, isn't it? No, absolutely. And I think we will certainly be keeping you up to date, at least on our social media channels, when we find out what kind of governments are going to come from these from these two elections, particularly in the Swedish case, when we might be getting some clarity in the coming weeks over what the intention is. Um, but for sure, we'll be keeping an eye on the Latvian election results and just seeing which parties manage to cross the threshold, because that could be the key for a lot of parties, which is a bizarre thing to think about, because usually we think about the threshold as being incredibly low, whereas in Latvia's case, it's about average. Um, so let's wait and see what happens. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we'll be when we will be previewing upcoming elections in both Brazil and the state election in Quebec in Canada. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam and until next time, we will speak to you soon. <laughs>